Welcome to the Grattan Institute podcast channel. This is a recording of one of Grattan's public events. Welcome to the Grattan podcast channel. The following is a recording of Grattan's event, Melbourne in a Time of Change, recorded on the 9th of October at the State Library of Victoria. Please note there were some issues with microphones on the night, so the recording is not up to a usual standard, and we have had to cut the question time at the end as the audience members were not able to be heard. Good morning, everyone. Hello. Welcome. Oh, you stopped talking really fast there. Uh, welcome in out of the rain on this uh, Driech Melbourne day. My name is Anna Berkey and I'm the head of Startspace, our new entrepreneurship service here at the State Library. And it gives me really great pleasure to welcome you along to the Policy Pitch tonight, a joint initiative between the State Library and the Grattan Institute. I'd like to acknowledge that this evening's discussion is held on the homelands um, of the peoples of the Kulin Nation, and I want to acknowledge them as the traditional owners of this land, this um, beautiful and slightly soggy land today, um, and to, to, um, to pay my respects to uh, the land, to the welcome that I personally have been shown on coming to this country, um, and to the pay my respects to elders past, present, and emerging, along with the elders of any other communities who might be here today. I'd also like to give you a very warm welcome um, to our Grattan Institute members and staff and friends of the library who are here tonight, and um, to tonight's speakers, Miriam Slattery, Peter Mayers, Marianne Terrell, and our moderator for this evening, Megan French. So tonight, we're here for a highly topical discussion about Melbourne in a time of change, which is uh, highly topical for us at the State Library because I'm sure you've noticed coming in this evening that the hoardings gone, have gone up on the Swanston Street entrance. The new entrances on Latrobe and Russell Street have opened and we are undergoing a major transformation. We're in the final year of that very exciting um, uh, Capital Works building project. We've seen huge growth in demand for our services and we get just over 2 million visitors per year and that is on a very rapidly high increase, uh, increasing trend of usage of the State Library. In fact, we have recently been named as the fourth most visited library in the world um, behind New York and I feel like New York are cheating because it's many branches, not one. Um, uh, New York, Brooklyn, and Beijing. Um, so ahead of the British Library, which makes me personally very happy. So um, that's, a, that's a lot of growth. And I think that, that that reflects the growth that our city is going for, through. And the new services like Startspace that, that I'm involved with um, are there to, to support the new needs of our community as the economy changes, as the makeup of our city changes. Um, how do we help and support our community to look ahead at the trends and challenges that are likely to come down the line and make sure that no one gets left behind and that we can provide the services and support for people to engage in civic discussion, for people to engage in the new skills and training they need in the digital and the, the the gig economy for the skills and opportunity that people need to in, um, engage with one another in a highly multicultural city. So I'm sure that we're going to cover a lot of really fascinating ground tonight um, and I'm sure that everyone is keen to hear our panel explore the state of Melbourne currently and where we're going to go to from here. I hope you've all got some great questions for afterwards as well. But in the meantime, it is my pleasure to introduce for this evening our very um, able moderator who is also the um, marketing manager for the Grattan Institute and producer and host of the Grattan Institute podcast. Please welcome Mar Megan French. 
Thank you, Anna. Uh, and thank you to the State Library of Victoria for hosting us tonight. Our partnership with the library is greatly valued by Grattan. It gives us the opportunity to bring events like this one tonight to you all. Uh, I'd also like to start this evening by acknowledging the traditional owners of the land on which we meet tonight and pay my respects to their elders past and present. Tonight's event, Melbourne in a Time of Change, comes hot off the heels of Grattan's recent report, Remarkably Adaptive, Australian Cities in a Time of Growth. It's no secret that Melbourne has been booming with population growth amongst the highest in the developed world and people continuing to flock here from around Australia and around the world. Tonight, our panel will look at the impact Melbourne's population growth has had, how well it has adapted and whether it's going to continue this way. First, we'll hear from my colleague, Grattan Transport Program Director Marion Terrell. Marion is a leading policy analyst with uh, experience ranging from authoring parts of the 2010 Henry Tax Review to leading the design and development of the MyGov account. Since joining Grattan in April 2015, she's published on investment in transport infrastructure, cost overruns, value capture, congestion and discount rates, and of course, most recently on Australia's adaptive cities. She'll be followed by Peter Mayers, Senior Moderator with the Cranlana Program, a regular contributor to Inside Story magazine and an adjunct fellow at Swinburne University. Peter is the author of three books, his latest being No Place Like Home, Repairing Australia's Housing Crisis. And finally, we'll hear from Miriam Slattery, Manager of Strategy and Partnerships at the City of Melbourne. Miriam spent 10 years working in the Victorian government improving transport, sustainability and governance outcomes, including as a ministerial advisor to the Minister for Public Transport. Please join me in welcoming our panel. A final note, if you'd like to contribute to tonight's conversation outside of question time, you can do so on Twitter using the uh, hashtag policy pitch or the, and the handles at Grattan Inst and at library underscore Vic. And I'd now like to invite Marion to the stage to start off her presentations for the evening. I'm going to start by um, setting the scene really for the next two speakers and, and giving you um, hopefully some fuel for your questions. Population growth in Melbourne has been very strong over the past five years, so there's no secret about that. Our population has grown by 2.3% per year every year on average for five years. And that's as high a growth rate as anywhere pretty much in the developed world. So let me just show you what that looks like. So we're, I think what's interesting about Melbourne's population growth is of, it is very dominated by overseas migrants, but we are also attracting domestic migrants, um, particularly um, you see a net outflow from Sydney and a net inflow to Melbourne. And so what this means, and especially today for anyone who has heard um, from the Commonwealth Minister's media today, we are hearing a lot from Canberra and from the state government about busting congestion. Everything from big new infrastructure to getting migrants to go to the regions, to more public transport. So my question is, will any of this work? And my contribution to answering this question, and without wanting to preempt what Peter or Miriam will say, I'm gonna share with you this research that I published last week that goes to the question of how well Melbourne in particular has adapted to population growth and what it means for new infrastructure here. I'll start with my most important and most intriguing finding, which is that despite the population growth of 2.3% a year, 
the impact on commutes has been remarkably benign. What you can see here is how is the distance that people commute. And I'm not sure if you can detect that there are two lines, but there are. The line in 2011 is almost identical to the line in 2016. In other words, people's commute distances are virtually indistinguishable over the five years when we've had this very rapid period of population growth. It's not just distances though, it's also times. So these are the times that people in Melbourne have been spending on their commutes since 2002. And so you can see that um, at the median, um, it's a very flat line. What that means is that half of that no half of people are spending no more than half an hour getting to work one way, and that that hasn't really changed since 2007. People doing short commutes um, around the 15-minute mark, very stable. People doing long commutes at around an hour, very stable. There's a little bit of creeping up at the, for people around the 45 to 50 minute commute, but overall, remarkably little change. So, so this is a, um, a very surprising finding if you listen to the media. And, and if you think about this very high levels of population growth by OECD standards. So how do we reconcile these findings with the deep concerns that we hear from people about congestion in Melbourne? So I'm going to answer, I'm going to give you two important factors that I think go some way to explaining what we, what we see here today. So the first is where the jobs are located. People often think that employment and employment growth are concentrated in the CBD and perhaps in a few other employment centres. People talk about Monash, for example, as being an important locus for jobs. And the implication of this is that it makes population growth very hard to manage because people are travelling to work on routes that are getting more and more crowded. But in fact, this is not really where the jobs are. In Melbourne, only 15.5% of jobs are in the CBD. That is pretty typical of the capital cities in Australia. Sydney's about 15% as well. It is a slightly growing share of the city's jobs. Um, so it's the, C the CBDs, um, including South Bank and Docklands, has grown at 3.2% a year, whereas the workforce as a whole has grown by 2.3%. So it is growing more quickly. But most of the jobs are not in the CBD. And, and, and most of the jobs are also not really in these other employment centres. Um, so, so people sort of wonder, is this a problem? I think hard to say, but it does seem that it's been a critical factor in how well Melbourne commutes and Melbourne commuters have adapted to population growth is this fact, which I will show you now, that jobs are highly dispersed. So what this chart shows you is um, lines connecting people's homes and their workplaces. And it's a random sample of 200 of these journeys with the grey dots being the workplaces. And we did this a lot of times to, to confirm that it's representative. What, we, what this shows, I think, is that you can see a concentration of jobs in the CBD. It's a, a, a bigger spot. But we had to put an arrow on to show you Dandenong. And Dandenong is the next biggest employment centre. So it's got 3.2% of Melbourne's jobs. And what, what 
the, the most dominant picture I think that you see here is that jobs and homes, like people's commutes are all over the city. The, the jobs are highly dispersed. And I think that's a, been a big part of, of how this adaptation has occurred. In terms of the change over time, th this slide shows you um, if you divide the groups into 20% uh, rings going out from the centre of Melbourne, um, you can see that there's very, uh, that um, in the time period from 2011 to 2016, there's not much change. You see, the growth on, in the outer areas is a little stronger, but it's not a strong effect. Mostly, um, the jobs growth is similar in 2011 to 2016. Melbourne is a lot like Sydney in this regard, with the jobs being the new jobs being pretty evenly spread, and it's quite a different pattern to the mid-sized capitals, Brisbane, Adelaide, and Perth, where you've got much stronger growth in the outer parts of the city than you do here in Melbourne. So to, to sum this up, what, what we're seeing, I think, is that um, jobs in Melbourne are highly dispersed. You've got three quarters of jobs that are dispersed across shopping centres and small offices and schools and clinics and construction sites all over the city. And this jobs dispersion has been a, a very important factor in why population growth hasn't translated into longer commutes. People are using the existing transport network more intensively. So that was one reason. I'll move to, now to my second reason. And, and that is that people adapt as well. There's, they adapt in many ways. Um, they can move house, they can change where they work, um, change their job, they can change how they get to work. And some people will simply put up with a longer commute, at least for a time. So in I don't have a lot of time here, so I'm just going to focus on changes in how people get to work. So I'll start by just showing you how people got to work in 2006, 2011 and 2016. And the most important thing to take away from this slide is that the great majority of people get to work by car. But it is becoming less popular in Melbourne, so it's dropping from 77 to 75 to 72% of commuting trips in that 10-year period. And there's a corresponding increase in public transport in Melbourne um, with rates of 14% up from 11% 10 years earlier. We also see that active transport is pretty stable, slightly under 5% over the period, so it's not growing its share. And it is worth noticing the top of this bar, which is working from home. So working from home is up, it, it's small, but it is up, um, well up really from a, uh, from a small base from four to four and a half percent in the past five years. So the, these are your aggregates and you can differentiate in these numbers a little further um, by, by just looking only at those people who were working in, Mel working in Australia in both 2011 and 2016 and see what they did. So this is not people who entered the workforce in that time, it's not new migrants and it's not people who left work, just people who are there in both times. And we wanted to look at this just to see what sort of changes that individuals were making. And this is what we found. So these established residents, um, you can see that even though the aggregate numbers are, are quite similar for each mode of transport, 
you can see a lot of change happening as well. So there's a, for the top part of this bar is vehicle travel and, um, you know, about a fifth of people move out of vehicle travel to some other mode, but they're matched roughly by a similar proportion shifting into vehicle travel. So, so what is interesting about this, so you see various things like established residents were less likely to use public transport. They didn't really participate in the uptick in public transport patronage that we saw for the population as a whole. Um, you do see stronger growth in working from home, perhaps because this sample aged five years in the period, unlike the general population. What I think is most interesting about this chart is that Below the aggregates, what you can see is that there's a lot of people, around a quarter of people in Melbourne, changed their mode of transport in the five-year period. And the same was true in the preceding five years. So even though a lot of the changes are cancelling each other out, the overall impact is that there is a lot of adaptation going on that is often not recognised. So that's my summary. Lots of change and adaptation. The aggregates don't really tell you that, um, but individuals are making changes so that they, amongst other reasons, so that they can, can keep their commutes very stable. And, and that's my conclusion here. I'm not seeing evidence that supports the concern that we hear in the media and from politicians about commutes getting out of control, cities in gridlock, livability down the drain. Instead, I see commute distances indistinguishable and commute times substantially the same. Now, we haven't had a lot of new infrastructure, so it doesn't mean, so I haven't talked about crowding, and I think that is probably where we're seeing the pressure point. But we should remember that people are adaptive in a lot of ways. And while politicians might reach for new infrastructure, preferably big, it is important to realise that jobs are very dispersed and that is why people tend to travel by car, but also that people adapt in ways such as moving house, working from home and ch changing their mode of travel. So that, that's my introduction. Um, I'll hand over to Peter now to talk more about population and housing. Okay, how does that sound, the microphone, all right? Okay, um, thank you, Marion and, and Megan, and uh, thank you to Grattan and the State Library for inviting me to speak. As Marion's demonstrated, Melbourne's um, population growth in, in recent years has been uh, phenomenal. Uh, the other thing that's happened um, in Melbourne in recent years has been the spectacular growth of house prices. Uh, not just houses, but also units. Uh, the escalating cost of residential real estate has gone hand in hand with declining rates of home ownership, especially amongst younger age groups. So this is 18 to 39-year-olds -old, in Melbourne. Now, it's easy to link these phenomena. Large numbers of people move to Melbourne, push up house prices and prevent young home buyers from getting their foot in the door. And when these connections are made, it's usually recent overseas migrants who get all the blame. It's too simplistic to look at it this way. There is no necessary link between immigration numbers, population increases, house prices, and levels of home ownership. We know this from our own history. Between 1947 and 1966, we went from just over half of all Australians owning their own home to almost three quarters. And this remarkable transformation occurred despite mass migration and a baby boom that together boosted Australia's population by more than 50% 
in the same time frame, from 7.6 to 11.6 million people. So the problem must be this. Back then in the glory years under Bob Menzies, we built enough houses, and now we don't. But again, the matter is not so straightforward. Victoria has actually been building a lot, constructing a lot of dwellings, and we can see that on this slide here. Now, I'm entering into contested territory here. Marion's colleagues at Grattan, CEO John Daly and fellow Brendan Coates, have been having a public debate with Associate Professor Ben Phillips at the ANU about whether Australia has been building enough housing, too little housing or too much housing. And I'm not going to, about to get between such economic heavyweights. But the question is not just about numbers, it's also about whether we're building the right sort of housing, the housing we most need in the places we most need it. And as this chart shows, a lot of what's been getting approved in Melbourne is of two kinds. High-rise apartments, that's the purple and black stuff at the bottom of the chart, and then uh, new detached houses in greenfield growth areas on the city fringes, that's the dark well, in my slide, it was originally dark green, but it's come up blue here. Um, so, so what we need a lot more of, and I think that John and Brendan and Ben would agree with me on this, is the kind of lilac stuff in the middle, townhouses and low-rise or medium-rise apartments in established suburbs. And this is the hardest stuff to build because, firstly, we have quite restrictive planning rules and the not-in-my-backyard activism. And secondly, land ownership in these existing suburbs is already fragmented into individual lots. And it's hard to reassemble those lots into parcels of land that would be large enough to suit medium-rise redevelopment at a precinct scale. But back to house prices. Immigration is also not the only thing driving demand for housing. So is increasing wealth. For one thing, as we get wealthier, we're more likely to buy second homes and holiday houses that we don't use much. Wealth boosts demand for housing as an investment, as an asset, rather than as a place to live, which further bids up prices. As investors, armed with the benefits of negative gearing and the capital gains tax discount, slug it out with home buyers at auctions. The generous tax treatment of the family home its exemption from capital gains tax, it's shielded from the pension assets test, inflates house prices too, because it encourages us to use our primary residence as a primary store of wealth. And then there's the effect of record low interest rates, deregulated financial markets, which have encouraged us to pay more and load up on debt. Now, some of this looks like it's coming to an end. But my point is that immigration and population growth are only part of a complex housing picture. I'm less worried about Melbourne being a growing city than I am about it being a city of growing inequality. And housing is central to my concern. The corollary of escalating house prices is escalating housing wealth. Take this Californian bungalow in Northcote, for example. Its value has increased by 600% over the past 28 years. Now, how do I know this? I know it because my wife and I bought that house in 1990 for the princely sum of $137,500. Now, I'd like to say that the increase in value since then was all down to our fabulous renovation, the beautiful garden we planted and so on. But in reality, it's mostly the underlying price of the land, not the value of the house, that has gone up. We sold that house 25 years ago, but we've made similar gains on our subsequent purchases. So we have been the beneficiaries of enormous generational luck. As Reserve Bank Governor Philip Lowe said in a speech a couple of years ago, it's arguable that the main impact of higher land prices is not really to increase our national wealth, but to change the distribution of that wealth. And we can see this in the data. 
In 2004, the wealthiest 20% of Australians owned property that was worth on average 1.3 times the average property holdings of everyone else combined. A dozen years later, in 2016, the average property holdings of the wealthiest 20% were 1.5 times what everyone else combined owned. That's what a real estate boom can do for you. Now, notwithstanding recent price declines, homeowners and residential investors have benefited handsomely from the rise in real estate prices. Not so renters. Though rents have risen much more slowly than house prices, increases have still outstripped wages. According to Anglicare's latest affordability snapshot, a tiny proportion of rental properties in metropolitan Melbourne are affordable to a single person earning the minimum wage. There are no affordable properties for single renters on Centrelink payments, and the result is rising levels of rental stress. That means that uh, a low-income household is spending 30% or more, and often much more, on their rent, which leaves them cutting back on heating, school excursions, trips to the dentist, healthy food, and so on. Now, rental stress has been going up at the same time as Commonwealth rent assistance has been going up and is now about $4.4 billion a year. And at the same time, social housing in Victoria in particular, in particular this is both state and community-run housing, has been going down. So the problem is not just that we're not building enough housing of the right type in the right places, we're also not building enough affordable rental housing for the people who most need it. Now, you might have been listening to me politely and still thinking quietly to yourself, yes, but all these problems would go away if only we had fewer people in Melbourne. Why not cut immigration like Dick Smith and Pauline say? So a few comments on immigration to conclude. First, the federal government has cut immigration. For the past two years, it's failed to meet its own immigration planning levels of 190,000 places. This used to be a target that public servants were expected to hit. It's now a ceiling that they have to stay below. The shortfall last financial year was 28,000 places. Secondly, the growth of temporary visas, with the growth of temporary visas, immigration is no longer a tap that governments can just turn on and off, up or down. Immigration is much more market-led. This is most obvious in the case of international students who account for a big share of Melbourne's population increase, particularly in the CBD. So let's look at the, the HODL grid here. Two thirds of residents within the HODL grid are less than 30 years old. And the share of residents born overseas is 86%. People born in China account for a quarter of all residents in the CBD, and more than a third of residents speak Mandarin or Cantonese. Australia has had an international education boom. It's the nation's third largest export. It's worth more than $30 billion annually. It's as Victoria's top export. And we don't know what the future holds. This chart shows that numbers can go down as well as up. That dip occurred when a rising Australian dollar coincided with vicious attacks on Indian students and the Rudd government's weakening of the link between study in Australia and permanent residency. And I anticipate there could be another fall in student numbers in coming years, partly because it can't keep growing like that, and partly because the government has made it much harder for international students, harder again for student graduates to become Australian residents, which is one, just one of the draw cards uh, for, for studying here. So there are many factors at play, exchange rates, visa regimes in countries like the US and the UK and so on. But recently, the Prime Minister suggested pushing temporary migrants, including international students, away from Sydney and Melbourne towards smaller capitals and regional cities. And I noted that the Warrnambool Standard got quite excited about the prospects for its Deakin campus. 
But to think that we can direct international students to study in Bendigo or Ballarat or even Adelaide or Hobart is to fail to understand the competition that drives enrolments. Competition not just between universities here in Australia, but between Australian institutions and rival international providers in a globalised market. Competition based on such things as the reputation of the university, the, the courses that they offer, the fee levels, and the attractions of a particular city as a place to live, work and study. So if international student numbers do fall in Melbourne in the years ahead, then it will be interesting to see who ends up living in all those high-rise apartments that we've built in the city centre. Thank you. So, hello everyone. I'll just make sure this is working. <clears throat> Sorry, can you all hear me? Yep. So, I thought I'd break with tradition and not use slides. Because I'm the only bureaucrat on the panel and I thought that would create a point of difference for me. So, you'll get to look at um, Peter's book for the duration of my speech. So, firstly, we know population is going to grow by 50% over the next 20 years. But what I want to talk about is the fact that change and growth is Melbourne's history. So, Land we're standing on now was an important meeting place for the traditional owners. Um, it still is a meeting place, but it's very different to what it was then. During the gold rush, we often talk about unprecedented population growth. Um, population apparently changed from like 30,000 people to 300,000 within two years. During the 1980s, Melbourne changed quite remarkably from a city without many residents to suddenly residents being a major cohort and ratepayer in the city. Um, so. Lots of these changes and these growths could have been done better, but forums like this and us all here today are part of making those change processes go well. So the city doesn't really have many of the levers for some, lots of this change, but having these public discussions, getting ideas from people, using evidence bases from Marion, Peter, all these kinds of people help us to inform policy positions going forward. So. You've probably heard lots of people from the city, the new Lord Mayor, lots of the councillors talk about, we're not worried about this change. We're not worried about this growth. There's challenges, but we're excited about these opportunities. Because primarily the city, we're, we're advocates at the city for a well-planned and well-managed city. So sometimes we have control over these matters and sometimes we just want to generate discussion. So I want to start by talking about the city as an economic generator. So the central city is critical to the economies and communities of both Victoria and Australia. We contribute approximately a quarter to the state's GSP and I think it's about 6% to Australia's GDP. So one of the main premises of what I'm going to be talking about is the knowledge economy is central to this and in economic terms the central city is growing faster than the rest of Australia and is the engine room for this economic growth. So I'm going to talk about three things briefly now that I'm hoping will generate good discussion at the end. One, how much room do we actually have? Two, why the jobs in the central city are important? And three, um, the city's role in transport and why Metro 2 is important. So first topic, how much room do we have? So I think there's a bit of an alarmist discussion about an influx of people. Um, we've got nearly 300 hectares of urban renewal areas within about 500 metres of the central city. We've got Egate, we've got Fisherman's Bend, and I think I spied someone who knows a lot about Fisherman's Bend, so I'm hoping she'll ask questions later. And we've also got 
Arden Macaulay. So our role at the city is to try to make sure those areas are well designed and well planned because that's where the jobs and all of the um, enjoyment of the city's future will be. So trains, trams, flood management, making sure it's all well planned and designed. Um, the second thing I want to talk about is why the jobs in Melbourne are important. So two-thirds of the jobs in the city centre are knowledge economy jobs. These jobs are our future. So the key to our future prosperity and growth and the whole nat nation's growth are these jobs. So I want to talk briefly about Melbourne Innovation Districts. It's effectively a concept and we're in it right now. So it in, it's a partnership between the University of Melbourne, RMIT and the City of Melbourne and it's modelled on leading concepts from um, other jurisdictions such as Boston and Barcelona. And the idea is that you create jobs for startups and drive that kind of um, co cohabitation and a generator for the future growth of these jobs which will promote economic sustainability in the future. So right where we are right now, we've got Grattan within the precinct of MID, we've got Australian Red Cross, we've got other startups, we've got RMIT and University of Melbourne. And the, the theory is that this all creates an incubation area. And I think Marion might have views on this, which we'll explore later. Um, three, I want to talk about transport, which is very close to my heart if you read my um, bio. Um, so right now at the City of Melbourne, we've been undertaking a transport strategy refresh process. And so what we've basically done is gone to leading experts from across Australia and the world to sort of generate public debate. There's heaps of discussion papers on our website, so I encourage you to go and have a look at those. But there's two things I want to talk about now. And the first one is walking. So lots of people forget about the importance of walking in the city, in the central city. 69% of trips are made via walking. Most of you probably walked here tonight, possibly in combination with another mode. We also understand that there's been a 400% increase in people who journey to work via walking over the last 20 years. Yet, we also know that 61% of the street space in the city of Melbourne is taken by roads and on-street car parking. Um, and we also know that roads serve just over one third of all trips in the city of Melbourne. So we're trying to prompt a discussion about this so we can get the right discussion happening at state and sometimes at federal to make sure we make the walking experience of the city the best it can be. That's reducing congestion for pedestrians. Um, so some of the ideas we've been flagging um, is reducing traffic speeds in certain areas. I think City of Yarra has just trialled this to reduce traffic to 30 k's an hour. Um, people get quite concerned about this. The theory and the perception of reducing traffic speeds worries people, but the evidence actually shows on the whole trips reduced by approximately 20 seconds. Um, signalling changes to reduce pedestrian um, congestion. So often you'll be waiting at a pedestrian intersection and technology now can assist us with making that transition far smoother so we, we don't have masses of people waiting at Flinders Street or at Elizabeth Street. Um, but overall, it's prioritising people over vehicles and trying to work out what the right balance is to make the city the most efficient. Um, I'll talk quickly about a good public transport network. So we think a world-class public transport network is critical. We are strong advocates for Metro 2, which is the kind of um, high-capacity um, train system we need for the future of the city. Um, so again, with Fisherman's Bend, 
Um, we're projecting that 80,000 people will be living there within 20 years. I understand the government's quite keen to do a tram bridge there or look into a tram option, but we think without a commitment to a train station there, future growth is going to be limited. Um, so I'm sure we'll debate this more in a second, but I just want to finish by saying how good it is again to have this kind of discussion. I often end up talking to people in my personal life about policy issues and we all theoretically agree on matters like we'll go oh we need more medium density housing we need this we need that and then we have the not in my backyard sort of perception as well that suddenly you realize oh actually i made a complaint about that proposal near where i live so it's really important to think both of the theory and what we're all doing to make change thank you Um, thank you very much, Miriam, and Peter and Marion, for your thoughts tonight. I'm very conscious of the fact we've started a little bit late tonight because we have a bit of a microphone issue, so we might try to push it out for another five minutes or so just to try to get through all of the discussion that we've got tonight, but um, we'll see how we're going. So, Peter, Miriam, we've just heard from Marion and from Brighton's research that Melbourne has adapted remarkably well to its population boom. So I feel like we probably should start tonight's discussion with just getting an idea from you both, to what extent do you agree with that proposition? Well, I would have thought that commutes had got longer, so I'm in really interested to see that data. I think that the point uh, Marion finished on, which is overcrowding, is actually what I've experienced most. So if you, you know, I catch regularly catch the train to and from Geelong um, or, or Warren Ponds, uh, and, you know, you're unlikely to get a seat if you're leaving um, Spen um, Spencer Street, Southern Cross, at, you know, any time between four and six thirty, seven o'clock, um, the, the, it's really heavily used now. Um, and I, you know, the same thing if you catch a ninety-six tram and, and so on. So, uh, the idea of encouraging more walking in the street in in, in the inner city, I think, is a great one. And the first thing I'd do would be get rid of the free tram zone, because that has encouraged people to jump on trams rather than walk a block. Um, and that's not what we want. It's not good for our health. Um, it, it, you know, it doesn't really serve any purpose, to, to, in, in my view. Um, so I would, you know, I would, I would, my, I would get rid of that because we, we want to actually encourage people to walk when they can rather than, than jump on trams. So I think that the, 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 uh, the big issue for me would be the overcrowding on the public people. A lot of people, you know, would probably experience that on a daily basis. Yeah, I agree. I think... Um I suppose my one hesitation is just, yes, we're adaptable and that your, your report shows that, Marion, really well, but I think it's what we're expecting in the future and not to discount the decisions that have been made in the past to put us in the position that we're adaptable. And I suppose the resilience of a transport network I think is really important and at what point do we get to a critical mass where it's not resilient. So if we, ha if we didn't have the city loop, for example, if someone hadn't made that decision to do that, what would it be like? And if we didn't make the decision to do Metro One now, which we've already done, what would we be like in 10 years? And, and yeah. some of the ways people adapt are perverse. So I was talking to someone today who could, who, who described, you know, colleagues who could catch the train in Geelong, but instead they drive to Marshall, which is two steps, two stations further back down the line because they can park there. And also when they get on, they'll get a seat, which they won't get on if they get in Geelong. Sure. <laughs> <laughs> now, listening to tonight's presentation, I've kind of got a sense of the main themes being sort of housing, transport congestion, jobs and communities when we're, when we're looking at adaptability and, and um, what we need to be focusing on in the future. 
So I'm kind of, I think I might structure some of my questions tonight based around those four main themes. So I'll start with housing. Um, Peter, you sort of talked a little bit about the middle ring um, established suburbs in your presentation and you know what needs to be done there without, without getting into the public debate that's been going on. Um, how has central Melbourne changed in terms of housing stock and who's... Well, a massive, I mean, anyone who will look around and has been here in the last five years, in the inner core of Melbourne, a massive increase in high-rise apartments. I mean, that's the numbers are quite phenomenal. Uh, and the question I have there is, um, well, these, you, you know, the postcode 3000 strategy, which Rob Adams at the City of Melbourne implemented, re-enlivened the city. When I, you know, came to Melbourne in the 80s, it was a dead zone, you know, after five o'clock and on the weekends and so on. It's re-enlivened the city. It's been fantastic. But there's, I think, risks in overdevelopment in terms of poor quality building, in terms of overshadowing, in terms of uh, wind tunnel effects and, and those sort of things that actually damages the city. So I'm, I'm concerned about the stock that's been built, the quality of that stock, what happens to it in the future, because it's been built mainly for an investor market. And it's it's not low-income housing, it's not affordable housing, body corporates are very high um, because of lifts and swimming pools and stuff like that. It's not energy efficient housing. So it's not necessarily the sort of housing we needed, I don't think, uh, which I would have seen being more medium rise, medium density being the ideal kind of model. And you did sort of touch on the changing demographic as well in the city. Who, who is it that's living in these high rises? What have you seen? Well, look, I'm, I'm only going on that, that census data, but it, you know, the city residents from the census are very young, predominantly overseas born. So I'd assume there's a very high level of international students. And that's, that's the visual evidence you have in the city. But I, I didn't look at Docklands. I looked simply at the HODL grid. So, you know, but I, I suspect you'd see a similar pattern in South Bank, Docklands, uh, Carlton and so on. And you mentioned we have lots of space to cope with growth. Uh, what's the biggest challenge for the city of Melbourne in dealing with this influx of new residents that we're seeing and not going to um, I think it's definitely lining up all three levels of government um, to have the same kind of vision because, as I said, not each level has different levers. So, for example, you know, affordable housing, we have some levers, state has some levers, you know, the Commonwealth does. So, it's it's making sure and obviously with changes of government at federally and etc, it's hard to line that up. We've got a new city's minister that's just come in. So, we have to get the state and the Commonwealth and us to all be on the same page. Um, to really get things working well. Mm -hmm. um, just, just on population, just okay. for a minute, I just want to sort of circle back. I'm so curious to know, obviously we have an idea of overseas immigration, you know, we've talked about cutting immigration and, and there's, you know, rising temporary visas. How much can we actually foresee and, and not foresee about future growth in our cities? Um, you know, in terms of immigration but also domestic domestic migration you know you've got things going on in our rural and remote regions at the moment which could very well affect an influx of of, of population into the cities yeah. well i think that rural areas are depopulating and that's you know i mean if you look at the Wimmera, where you used to have lots, or, or the Mallee, you had lots of little farms. Now they're all amalgamated into one big farm with one big combine harvester that comes through and harvests. You don't need a local mechanic. You don't need a local agricultural. You know, the, the people come. Why do people come to the city? They come here because there are jobs, because there's things to do, because it's exciting, because the lifestyle's interesting. I was talking to a, a young woman from Warrnambool recently. I said, why did you move to Melbourne? She said, oh, 
You know, what do you mean? What do I develop? And this so you know, this is where things happen, right? And so we can't and we 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 can't anticipate how many of course things like house prices will affect it. We've seen people move out of Sydney quite possibly driven by house prices, um, but we can't predict locally. And then at the immigration level, well, we can cut our permanent migration intake, um, but a lot of our migration is temporary. So while we've seen a big growth in international students, we've seen a big fall actually in 457 visas. They've gone down quite substantially from about 150,000 present in Australia to about 110,000. We've seen a big fall in working holiday makers. So we're seeing the government cast around now. They're talking about a new agricultural visa to, to bring in agricultural workers on temporary visas. We're going to have a debate about how we fund age, how we staff aged care. Where there's already a thing called the Pacific Labor uh, Scheme, which is bringing in Pacific workers for, not for cities, but for remote areas for three years uh, to work in sectors like aged care. So, you know, these debates are going to continue. And um, I, I guess it's not so easy as, as in the 20th century to say, well, let's lower our migration level and then we'd know we'd lower our, 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 our net overseas migration and our population. It's not so easy as it used to be. And does that affect planning in terms of the city Definitely, it affects planning, but again, it's um, having a coherent vision between levels of government helps because all the levers are different. So immigration, you know, if, if we line that all up and have everyone working together, you can plan better. Simple as that. Makes sense. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, so moving on to transport, uh, Marion, if we have more population across the city as a whole, does that mean governments should respond by building more infrastructure, Metro 2, for example? So what we've seen in the last five years when we've had this population growth is that there hasn't been a lot of new infrastructure come into operation. So that in Melbourne there's a lot under construction, but it's some way off in more five to ten years before we see things like Melbourne Metro carry its first passenger. So, um, and, it's, and it's easy to imagine that if you have um, 2% more population, you're going to need 2% more infrastructure, surely. But in fact, it doesn't really work like that. What there's there's really strong economies of scale in infrastructure. Um, you can see that uh, not just in Australia but around the world, people are, are travelling a similar number of kilometres um, each in over the course of a year. Not just commuting, but all their travel. But if they're in a bigger city, they have less infrastructure per person. So, so that, that applies to lane kilometres of road, but it seems to apply to other forms of hard infrastructure as well. And, and what is happening, if, and you can think about this as, as crowding, but it is, is also efficient use. It, it's also things like in the middle of the night, there will be some cars out and about on Melbourne roads, but in a country town, perhaps not. And so there, there is this, um, we do use the infrastructure more heavily, but we are able to get more out of it. And, and what that means is we don't, it's not that you need no new infrastructure. If you have population growth, you probably do. But um, this idea that you've got to play catch up, I think is not really borne out by what we see in the data in terms of what a city can deal with um, in hard infrastructure and population growth. And Miriam, Moving into more dealing with the population and, and, and congestion, busting congestion, um, as it were, the, the City of Melbourne recently floated the idea of congestion pricing, and that's something that, that Grattan has um, spoken about previously as well. How far is the city from addressing that congestion by taking a different tack to what's happened to date? 
Um, look, I can't speak on behalf of council, but look, it's definitely something that's been discussed for years and councillors have spoken about it as an option. We don't have control over doing that though. We're only advocates, if that makes sense. But obviously there's many ideas that have been flagged by Grattan that could be trialled, for instance, and I'm sure City would be willing to consider them. It's just, it's the state government's remit to decide how to do that. This would be a classic opportunity for a state-local government partnership, wouldn't it? <laughs> Uh, so moving on. <laughs> no, I'll talk to my boss. <laughs> uh, moving on to the jobs side of things that we've that came up in in your presentations, Miriam. To what extent and by what means can the city of Melbourne attract certain types of jobs, knowledge worker jobs, as opposed to other kinds of jobs, and and should it be? Um, as I mentioned, the Melbourne Innovation Districts concept, just sort of doing more to to sort of draw boundaries around, whether they're, they're literal or metaphorical, um, around sort of clusters of universities, of research, of startups to try to put a dedicated effort into it. And we've got international examples where that's worked, you know, Boston and Barcelona. Um, you know, broad, more broadly, how much government can control that you know, it's, it's not an exact science. So I know Marion's got views on this. You know, we've seen other attempts in regional areas or, you know, it's, whether it's Dandenong or somewhere else or Box Hill where governments have tried to create precincts and sometimes they work, sometimes they don't. I don't think anyone has the answer, but it's worth trying and we think um, the knowledge economy um, sort of um, convening is going to work. Yeah, certainly urban planners talk up the virtues of polycentric development. Marion, do you think it's a way that Melbourne should and could head? So they have, they do talk it up and um, I think one of the reasons why people are attracted to it is because you can have more dedicated public transport and, and so that offers people more options. But what we found in our research is that um, in Melbourne the after the CBD, the next biggest centre is Dandenong at 3.2%. If you look at Sydney, Parramatta's touted as the second CBD and it's got 2.3% of the jobs and it's not growing as a share. So I think governments have been trying for a very long time to get these um, poly centres off the ground, but it looked to me like the only city in Australia that you could describe as polycentric was Canberra. And I think that's um, a bit of a special case in that government has um, its hands on the levers to a much greater extent as to where jobs are located because more of them are government jobs. So I think it's been difficult to achieve and um, I'm not sure that, it's, that we should be too worried about this because the dispersion of jobs I think has served Melbourne very well. And Peter, more in the CBD and, and in Melbourne more broadly, you've you mentioned the rise in temporary visas and sort of this, this kind of shift to temporary migration. What do you see this meaning for jobs in the CBD in Melbourne? Uh, well, I think I think it's um, I guess if if we just go back to the international students and you remember I showed that chart and I showed there was a dip in the number of international students after the GFC around 2010 2011. The universities were screaming. They were really, really worried by that dip because they are so heavily reliant on international student fees. And so if we, if we see fluctuations in student numbers, that is going to create really severe problems for our tertiary sector. Uh, and, and there are a lot of jobs in that tertiary sector. So I think that's, a, you know, as, as we've said, this is not something we have simple control over. I mean, we can adjust our visa settings. So after that dip, 
What we did, the government introduced a new post-study work visa. So any international student who completes a university degree in Australia can stay in Australia for another two years and work. That was done to try and increase the attractiveness as a, of Australia as a destination. Um, so, you know, we can fiddle around with visas, but if the US suddenly started making great offers to international students, people would go there. If the US and Britain, as they have been doing, make it harder for international students, we benefit. Or we get increasing numbers. So, or we could say, well, we want to cap student numbers. That's a reasonable debate to have. Should we actually cap student numbers? But how do you do that? Well, the best, you know, do you say, well, Melbourne University, you get this number, and Newcastle, you get this number, or whatever? It's very tricky to work out. You could do it by raising the bar and saying, well, we're going to take a higher level of student, and then you'll, some of the students will drop away. But what then do you say to James Cook University or whatever, where, where students aren't going to go? So it's a very complicated picture. And I think, you know, as I've said bef mentioned before, we've also got this, you know, we've got other areas of the economy that are crying, at least saying they're short of labour, like the agricultural sector, like aged care. How are we going to meet these needs? These are, these are not temporary jobs. These are permanent jobs. Why do we bring people in on a temporary visa? Well, because we can tell them where to live. We can say, no, you've got to live in, you know, Warrnambool and work there. And if you don't stay in that job, well, you can't stay in Australia. And we're talking about provisional visas now where people will be, I mean, the government's talking about a, a new kind of provisional visa. So in order to get permanent residency, you'll have to stay living in the regions outside Sydney, Melbourne for five years. So we're starting to, now this, this, this has implications for people's rights and democracy and so on. So it's a, you know, it's a, it's a tricky kind of scenario, I think. I'm very conscious of time, so we will throw open to the audience um, for some questions very shortly if you want to start thinking about what you want to ask. Um, but Peter, I understand you had a question you might like to ask Marion well, while we're here. Yeah, so <laughs> if, I, if I could. I mean, the idea that people adapt is, I think, a really interesting one. And I mentioned that story about the train to Geelong, people adapt sometimes in perverse ways. But what what we've just seen the latest IPCC report on climate change. and and. The problem is we need to address both transport and building so to address climate change as well as energy. And how do we do that? If, if we allow people to adapt in their own ways and that means they drive more, we're getting the wrong outcome in terms of climate change. Or if people adapt and they, we build more you know, high-rise buildings that are not energy efficient. So how do, we, how do we manage this kind of liberal idea of letting people adapt in their own way and the imperative to address climate change. Yeah, so it's very difficult in a world where we don't have a carbon price because what we're uh, forced to resort to is setting regulations that try to direct people's behaviour um, in ways that we think will get the outcome we want. But we don't really know if we did set a carbon price what kinds of innovations would emerge. We don't know what people would do if when they made their decision about driving they were confronted with the, the pollution that they created by doing it. So we can regulate them and we can put taxes on them, but it, it is, there is a more direct route from A to B here and we're not taking it. I, I do think in terms of um, your comment about um, high-rise buildings are less um, energy efficient, um, I, um, that, that I'm, I was interested that you said that. I would have thought that it... Um, it would be as easy to believe that the reverse was true, actually, that um, uh, people would, uh, because of this economies of scale and infrastructure that people are using less of everything um, on a smaller footprint. Um, They're very heavy, heavily dependent on air conditioning and, um, and uh, heating. 
as, yeah. uh, uh, as well as plant and equipment. So compared to medium rise, I think I'm pretty on safe ground that they're much more. Not necessarily, I don't, you know, the, the, the broad acre greenfield suburbs, there are probably other considerations because if you add in transport costs and stuff, so it's a complicated scenario, but yeah. Yeah, it's very hard to know if we have this piecemeal approach and um, which we seem to have for the, for the time being. Well, on that note, I will draw tonight's event to a close. I do apologise that we started a bit late and have then finished late. We had a bit of a technology issue, unfortunately. Uh, thank you once again to our partner, the State Library of Victoria. Be sure to check out their What's On for what they have upcoming. Uh, also a huge thank you to our panellists tonight, Peter, Miriam, Marion. It takes some time to prepare for these sorts of events and we really appreciate you taking the time out to share your experience. Finally, thanks to our audience for your attention tonight uh, and have a wonderful evening. Thank you very much. Grattan Institute is uniquely positioned to bring an independent, rigorous and practical lens to big issues in public policy with the capacity to talk honestly to both sides of politics. We maintain this unique position through the generosity of the public and our affiliate companies. If you would like to find out more about contributing to our continued independence, head to our website to donate. Grattan.edu.au. This has been a Grattan Institute podcast. If you want to hear more, subscribe to our podcasts on iTunes.